Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Our Old Testament reading is found in the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter 11. Beginning in chapter 11, 31 through 38, and then we'll pick up in chapter 12. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the god of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses and said of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen. There was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Our New Testament reading is found in the book of 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 2. Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what it is restraining him now so that he may be re- revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. 
And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in an unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning. I see glazed eyes, and that was a, that's, that's a difficult passage to hear, isn't it? What does the Lord say to us from this chapter? So let's pray, and let's ask God to help us, to give us eyes to see and receptive hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is clear, even if it is, even if it is at times frightening. We thank you, Father, that it is enlightening, even when there are places where it is confusing. Father, you are sovereign. Lord, this is your house. These are your words. And only your spirit can make it effectual in the hearts of your people. So, Lord, I ask for your glory and for the sake of your people that your spirit come down and make this word effectual. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, I'm sure you're asking, what? <laughs> what is going on in this passage? We read from Daniel, we read from 2 Thessalonians, and who are these unnamed figures that are not being named? <laughs> it's terrifying. Why is Paul seeming to be so ambiguous in his, in his, with his language? You may even be surprised. You may be asking, where is the gospel at in this? This sounds like Paul is just out to get all the bad people. And at the end, Jesus is just going to wipe them all out. Where is the gospel at? Is the gospel even extended? Or has Paul put that behind him? And now he's wanting Christians to storm the gate, so to speak. Or may you may be asking more personal questions. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my tomorrow? I have to wake up at 5 a.m. and go to work and deal with all the things that entail jobs. And what does this have to do with that? Or you may be of the sort that says, I can't believe any of this. This is just ancient blabber that's trying to make sense of something that they didn't know. And that's all that we can know. So, it's philosophically immature, maybe, right? Well, I think Paul answers those questions in a variety of ways. But I think he's answering an actual, a bigger question. A bigger question. So there may be some in here who look at this, and this actually makes you restless. You read this, and you're like, that Jesus terrifies you. You love Jesus, but this Jesus you see here is terrifying. Or 
Or you may, be, you may hear, you may have heard 2 Thessalonians verses 11 and 12, and you may be asking, how can I be sure that I'm not numbered among those who reject the truth and love unrighteousness? Or you may even be of the sort that wonders, when is this all going to take place? So even that question, the unknown of the when and of the details of the how may cause you a bit of anxiety. Most of you are old enough in here to remember back in 2012, I believe, I forget who it was, but there have been many before then, since then, who have claimed Jesus is going to return, fill in the date. Well, I believe Paul is tackling that head on. He's tackling that head on. And in that sense, this text is actually more pastoral than you can imagine. Paul, what he wants is this church and for you to have, for your confidence and peace in the Lord to rest solely upon Christ's word. That's what he wants. And I I want us to look at that. That's really the first big point is that Paul wants our confidence to be solely in the Lord and his word. So uh, first, let's, I want to take a look at some what I like to call p- several pastoral notes here, just to show you how pastoral this epistle actually is. So before we get into the intriguing parts, the things that maybe stimulate your intellectual curiosity, I want us to see that Paul is dealing with real fear, real people, and real concern. Okay, so first, notice he leads with the very thing that they are anxious about. Notice how it starts off. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And what is the source of their being shaken? What's the source of their being alarmed? But it's something concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. Now, that's amazing because if you've been here throughout this preaching series, and if you're familiar with 1 and 2 Thessalonians, every chapter except one refers directly to the coming of the Lord. So Paul has been preaching about the coming of the Lord over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, you can call this text sermons on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in that. But because of this, because it is of great consequence, because it is of great importance, for that very reason, we shouldn't be shocked that it also caused the greatest concern and the most anxiety. As a quick example, I remember I have a, a, a young man who I've mentored and discipled, and he was wrestling with anxiety. And his anxiety was particularly placed in the gospel itself. The gospel itself. I would read passages that pointed him to the love of Jesus that he can be sure in, but you know what he would hear every single time. He would hear those if clauses, those those condition clauses. Repent and believe. And he's like, have I repented? We shouldn't be shocked that things of great importance can also be the source of great anxiety. And here that is the case. And Paul deals with it. And it's not unlike him to do that. He's done it before. As you remember, if, you, if not, I can re- re- rehearse it. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4, there's another concern about the return. In that case, in that sense, in that section, 
the church was concerned that Christ hadn't returned soon enough and that their loved ones had died. So they're like, they're grieving. What do, what do we do now? How do we think about our loved ones who have passed on? And they're grieving. And Paul enters into there and he says, no, we aren't ones who grieve without hope for, this, for the same Jesus who will raise you up will raise them up too. He deals with them pastorally. And here he does likewise. And he says, do not be quickly shaken. He names, he names what's going on in their hearts. There's this quickness in their mind to be shaken to the core of their belief. That's the idea here, quickly shaken. The idea of shaken is to be, to be rattled, to be rattled, to be fracturing at the seams, to be breaking at the seams, to be moved from firm belief now to intense doubt. And that's what they're dealing with here. They're dealing with intense doubt. Or alarmed, the way Paul uses the word is perpetual anxiety. It's something that they go to bed with every night and they wake up with every morning. And it's important that we notice that and that we consider how intense this doubt must have been. For instance, Paul's description of their conversion back in 1 Thessalonians. He says that this is what they did. They turned from God, turned from idols, should I say, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who we raised from the dead. So part of their conversion experience was this deep sense, this all of life, all encompassing of their life sense of waiting upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So should it shock us here that they are concerned? Should it shock us here that they are dealing with this intense anxiety, this intense doubt? Now, what is the root of their doubt? What is the root of their doubt? No, notice what it says, it goes on. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So their concern here is that Jesus has come, and they weren't ready. News has gotten out somehow. Paul says it's either, either came by spirit, a spoken word, a prophetic utterance, or a letter that supposedly came from him. That came to them saying, guess what? The Lord has returned. Now you can imagine, here is this church and their, their loved ones have died. They've been promised that they will be raised up together with him. And that the enemy will be destroyed. Well, imagine hearing that news and you look around and none of that has happened. That's what's going on here. They've heard news, they thought were from Paul, that Christ had returned, and their faith is rattled, utterly shaken. And Paul says, oh, don't be so quickly moved from your faith. Even if it hasn't come from me, if it hasn't come from the apostolic message, from the apostolic preaching of the gospel, then it is not true. It is not true. 
Then he says, let no one deceive you. So that idea, let no one deceive you, we're not, I'm, I'm not sure, we're not sure if this was intentional deceit, as in false prophets have come in and they were intentionally trying to deceive, or it was unintentional. It was just people in the congregation who may have taken Paul's letters, previous letter, and misunderstood it or misapplied it or took it to the extreme. Whatever it was a case, it caused a buzz in the church. It caused a great buzz in the church. So let's look more. Paul now begins to deal with these concerns, and this is where it gets dicey, so to speak. He says this. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless certain things happen first. Certain things happen first. So the first point, he's dealing with a pastoral concern. He's saying, I want your faith to rest in the apostolic message, which is none other than the word of Christ. And that, should, that, that first point runs through everything else. This whole section is pastoral. But here he begins to deal with something else. And he, he basically says this. Things will get worse so that they will get better. That's a really strange way to say it, but I think it gets at the point. That's the next point. Things will get worse so that they will get better. As you can, it's, it's clear. When you read verses 3 through 4 and 9 and 10, there is this sense that there will be an increase in evil. Not the type of evil that is deterrent, or if you saw it, you wouldn't want to do it, but the type of evil where it looks good. It's palpable. It's, 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 it's the accepted dogma of the culture. Where good becomes bad and bad is, is accepted as good. And you sort of get this in verse 7. That even now that there's a mystery of lawlessness that's at work. And this idea of mystery, this is not like a puzzle that needs to be figured out. Something that's waiting to be revealed. This mystery of lawlessness, the way Paul is using it as it doesn't make any sense. Lawlessness, i.e. sin, doesn't make sense. I mean, think about it. Does it make sense that we are often so quick, you and I, quick to lie over the smallest things? Does, does our pride actually make sense? Is it, is it logical in the sense that Yes, this is, this is a genuine thing to do here. That I can look at somebody else and say, I'm better. It's racism. Is that logical? That somebody can look at me and think that I'm less than? Or I can look at somebody else and based on whatever, I'm better than? Does mass shootings make sense? Is it logical? I want to be sensitive because I know it wasn't too long ago that this state experienced a tragedy like that. So my point is not to trigger. My point is to show the absurdity of lawlessness. And that's what Paul is saying here. Sin is absurd. At the root of it, it makes absolutely no sense. From the big historic calamities that we see to the personal ones that you commit, that you and I commit, it doesn't make sense. But 
and he, it, it goes on to say more. First, the rebellion will come. But to the point that things will get better. So there will be this, there is this mystery of lawlessness at work right now, and there is a sense that it's going to increase more and more. But also, in our text, if you look at verses 6 and 7, there's a sense that God is in control, that the world is not spinning out of hand. Notice phrases like this. There is this restraining power, restraining even from reaching its full potential. Why? So that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. That's where I get the so that from. So that this man will be revealed. And when he's revealed, that's when you see the hammer come down and hit the nail. It's the moment the son of lawlessness is revealed. It's the moment Christ returns. So there is a sense in which sin is increasing, but it's not spinning out of control. There is something at work here bigger and broader and grander than evil. So that's why I say things will get worse so that they will get better. So, again, Paul says that there will be certain things that must come first, and we must be humble here in untangling some of these things because it can be quite unclear. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a message here. So Paul says, what must come first? The, the, the rebellion. Our ESV translation says that the rebellion comes first. Well, the rebellion, the rebellion, the word there is actually where we get our word apostasy. So it really, to be more clear, I should say the apostasy will happen first. So the apostasy, the, the sense that we get from this apostasy is that it will be both, it will be religious in nature and it will extend worldwide. Religious in nature, extend worldwide. How do, I, how do I know that? Well, look at verse 4. Again, if you need to use your, it might, might be helpful to use your, your, your bulletin or your Bible here because we will be using some other text to make sense of what is going on here. So notice it says that this, this apostasy will come from this individual who we'll get to next, and it will start where and this person sits in, the, sits in the temple of God. Do you see that there? This man of lawlessness will come and he will sit in the temple of God. The idea of sitting is the idea of ruling. That this person will come and he will rule. And the fact that it's the temple is the idea that it's religious. Now, obviously, the question here is, what does he mean by the temple of God? There are some strands of belief that believe that at some future point, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But I don't think that's the case because... Nine times that this phrase is used outside of this outside of Second Thessalonians, it always refers to the church. Not once does it refer to Israel. So it is my contention that here is referring to that this apostasy will take place in the church. That there will be this widespread, widespread renouncing of the faith. Renouncing of the faith. Now, what would that look like? I don't, think it, I don't think it takes much for us to imagine that. You may have friends or family who consider themselves no longer Christian. I have several friends, both close and afar, that no longer consider themselves Christians for a variety of reasons, some of which I'm very sympathetic to. But do you get the picture on how how dark this 
the season in world history will be. Because I'm, I'm assuming from the, the, the mood of the text that those who are turning away from Jesus aren't doing it simply because they, they hate Christianity, but because the lies of the world make more sense. It just makes more sense. And going back to that deal, this mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness even here at work, even now at work in our world, isn't it tempting even for us as Christians to look at our faith and to look at the world and say, I don't know about this. I don't know if I can stand on this. Paul is saying that there will come a point, a point when there is this widespread renouncing of the faith. Paul says that that must come first. It's religious in nature, and it's worldwide in its reach. Then he goes on to say that, again, this man of lawlessness. Now, here is where the church has gone bonkers over trying to figure out who this person is. And if you were raised in the left-behind generation, those great theologically sound movies, you've been scarred. You and I have been scarred. It's been really easy for, especially in, more in America and if not the West, to be obsessed with figuring out who is this person going to be. And that's been the case throughout church history. Some have seen um, the Emperor Nero as the Antichrist, as this man of lawlessness. It made sense. He was lawless. Some have seen Napoleon Bonaparte. Hitler, even here, some have seen certain political parties, political figures. The list goes on and on and on. We're always trying to find a contemporary figure to make sense of this. Well, guess what? Paul doesn't even give us who this person is at all. Doesn't say it. Doesn't say it. I remember, um, I remember, uh, there's this, there's this story of two eighth graders who were, true story, by the way, two eighth graders sitting discussing, you know, grew up in the left behind era, and they're discussing this idea of the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness. And it goes something like this. Person A, who do you think the Antichrist is going to be? Person B, I don't know. Person A, well, do you think it could happen in our lifetime? These are 14-year-olds, by the way. Person B, I guess, if that's the case, then the Antichrist is probably a child right now. Person A, yes, which means it could, could be anybody. What if it's Billy Graham? No way, that would be impossible. But it could be anybody. So it's possible Billy Graham is Antichrist. Those are untrained musings of eighth graders. And by the way, one of those eighth graders was me. <laughs> I'll let you guess who thought Billy Graham is, is Antichrist. A little levity doesn't, doesn't hurt, because it is silly. And it is a bit silly to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. Because Paul simply doesn't name the who. But he does want us to ask a different question. What is this person like? And that's where we get answers. That's where we get answers. So what is this person like? Oh, he'll be the, he'll, he will be the epitome of evil. That's that's. That's, that's wrapped up in the idea of lawlessness. He is the epitome or the, 
the, the epicenter or the whatever of evil. Now, does this refer to one person? Or does it refer to many people? Does it refer to a government? The, the, again, the list goes on and on in, in, in its interpretations. But what we do know is that he will be evil. It's even, fra- it's even seen there in the term. It says that he's the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. So he will be lawless. He will live and exude life as though God did not exist and he gave no law to obey. At every turn, he will disobey God's law to the fullest extent of God's law. This man looks like evil unrestrained. The idea of son of destruction, we'll come back to that phrase in a bit, but it's the idea that this person is set on destroying. Everything God created good, he is set on destroying. He's not only the epitome of evil, he's the epitome of pride. Notice, what does he do? He, he, he comes into the temple of God, he, he opposes and he exalts himself. Those two phrases are phrases that all throughout the Old Testament point pictures to being prideful. And here's this person, he comes strutting in. And his point is, his, his pride goes as far as to say, I am God. I am God. That's what the text says. That's what the text says. It's saying that at some point in history, there will be this figure. Now, let's go back to the pastoral. This is helpful. It's helpful that, one, he doesn't name the person, but he forewarns them. Think about that. He's forewarning this church to strengthen the church. He lets them know what's going to happen in advance so that they won't be deceived. Do you see how pastoral Paul is being? He warns them, yes, there is going to get bad. There's going to be a person who's going to be the epitome of evil, the epitome of pride. But behind all this, you can almost hear him saying, take heart. Take heart, remember your Bible. He also will be energized by Satan. You see that there in none. This coming of the lawless one would be by the activity of Satan. So behind all this is your, yours and, and mine, greatest enemy. We've seen this, this person, the adversary, Satan himself, throughout. We see it here. We, we saw it a few months ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, that what does Satan do there? He tempts, he's tempting this, this church away from the faith because of what they're facing in persecution. He's all throughout this text. He's the one behind all the deception. He is called by Jesus Christ the father of lies. That is M.O., is to deceive you. His MO is to deceive you into destruction. And we don't, don't and we see that in our own lives, don't we? With sin. Why is it that we, when we're tempted by sin, we see sin as good? And we start bargaining, don't we? Start bargaining. By giving a little here. It won't be as bad later. I've heard that said. We bargain. 
or we will use grace as a means to sin, won't we? I'll do that now because I can repent later. So I can, have, I can have my cake and eat it too type mentality. Deceptive. And Paul is saying, I'm going to pull the curtain up. Behind this person is none, none other than Satan himself. No, that should cue us in because I'm, I'm positive Paul has taught it and I'm more positive that the Bible teaches it. Anytime you hear the word Satan is behind anything, the first thing the Bible wants you to remember is that he is already defeated. And he's promised to be defeated. That he's a liar. Well, he's the epitome of evil, the epitome of pride, energized by Satan. He's also an imposter. Notice he claims himself to be God, but he's not. Or down here in verse 9 and 10 again, it says the coming of the lawless one. Again, that's our, the same word used there. It's the same word used in the previous verse about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same one used in, in verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that word that you may have heard before. I'm sure you heard the parousia, parousia, however you say it in Greek. It's the same word. Paul is saying that this imposter will try to come just like Jesus. Notice it says here, again, in verse 9 and 10, how does he come? He comes with all power. He comes with false signs. He comes with wonders. How did Jesus come in his earthly ministry? With signs and with wonders. It's almost like Satan's last effort to extinguish the church. That's the picture you have here. He's an imposter, Paul says. But he says also he's not just those things. He's also a doomed person. Again, remember that phrase, son of destruction. The only other time that that phrase is used is to Judas. Judas was called by Jesus the son of destruction, or depending on translation, son of perdition. And that, that, that idea now has a double meaning. It, it does mean he's intent on destroying, but it also means he's destined to be destroyed. So he's doomed from the start. That's the idea here. Like Judas. But Paul goes on and he says more. He's also a restrained person. So look at verses 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now this is a puzzle wrapped up in a riddle tied with an enigma. Without, without comparison, this is one of the hardest verses to figure out what is Paul talking about. What is he talking about? Well, I think it's helpful to, 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 again, let's go back and remember, Paul is addressing a pastoral concern. He's not addressing seminarians' curiosity. And if you look at verse 5, he reminds him that I taught you these things when I was with you. So the assumption there is that he, pro he probably said more. And here he is just brushing over the basics to remind them to quell their fears. So Paul is not being ambiguous for us. He's being clear to them, and, and God has left us with something else, even if it's a little less than the, than the Thessalonians had. So again, here's the question. Is the restrainer a what, or is it a he? If it's a he, which it seems it clearly is, who, who is the restrainer? There are numerous takes on this, and there are seven, but my, I am not going to bore you with seven. List 
of these interpretations because most of them seem very outlandish. But there are two that are, that are intriguing, and, and, and I use them because other parts of the Bible speak to this, and it may be helpful. So the, 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 the first is that this restrainer, this he and this what, is the church and the spirit, the Holy Spirit. So if you can turn in your Bible to Matthew 24, and if you want to use your pew Bible in the front, it's on page 779. 779. So let's, let's look at that. Matthew 24. Verses 12 through 14. I want you to notice the similarities between this text and the other. Again, this, this is, this is Jesus' version of the end times, his description of what it's going to be like. Starting in verse 12. And because lawlessness, there's that word, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then, there it is, and then the end will come. So, Maybe, maybe here, as Jesus is saying, that it's the preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what's restraining. Because of the timeline here that we see, it's the moment that when the gospel reaches the far corners of the earth, that then Christ will come. So maybe it's the church. Or another relevant passage, and it would be in Acts 1, 8 through 11, we won't go there, but it goes something like this. There Jesus gives a great commission. Go and preach the gospel to Jerusalem and then let it reach to the outer reaches of the world. And then he ascends into heaven and then angel, and they're looking up at him. And then the angels come by and says, why are you looking up? Well, the same way he went up, he'll come back. So again, tied to his return, tied to the hope of his return is the great commission. So maybe there the, the what is the church and the he is the spirit. But there's a problem with that because in our text in Matthew, in, excuse me, in First, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that this person, whenever the lawless one will be revealed, this person has to be removed. Once he's out the way, then he'll come. And it's hard to imagine that God's going to take his spirit away from the church. And this is a passage that some have seen the rapture in. Well, the, if it's the church and the church is gone, then Christ returns. But there's a problem with that, too. For verse 1, how it starts off. Their hope is that when Christ returns, they will be gathered together with him. Not before. So there's a, an, another one. And we read it here a bit in, in Daniel. Um, or at least in the, the, not in the same chapter, but the other interpretation, maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's an angel. If you turn in your Bibles to seven, page 748 in your pew Bible or Daniel 10, or Daniel 10, verses, verse 13 and then 20 through 21. So in this chapter, a, an angel has come to Daniel and is telling him of of things that are going on behind the scenes, so to speak. Now, the reason I'm, we're using Daniel is because Paul has been marinating. He's, he's actually used language from Daniel, and you saw it there. 
So his mind is steeped in Daniel. And notice what verse 13 says. This is the angel speaking. An, un, an, un, an unnamed angel. The prince of the, of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, the angel, 21 days. But Michael, another angel, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. And then look at 20 through 21. Then he said, that's the angel. Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of, of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except, against these except Michael, your prince. So behind the clashing armies, behind these big, great big governments, it seems Daniel is saying that angels are fighting. But there's a problem. There's nowhere in our text that Paul even hints at that this is an angel. So we have to be humble. We have to ask the question that the text actually wants us to ask. I think those are, are, are important things to look at because of the context. But Paul wants us to know something more. Again, he's not, at, he's not wanting us to know who this person is, but what this person's like and what this thing is. So, so notice, the restrainer in this context is a positive restraint. There's something restraining lawlessness. There's gospel there. Because God only restrains lawlessness to extend mercy. That's why he restrains lawlessness, to extend mercy to you. The restrainer restrains with a purpose. He restrains so that the lawless one may be revealed in his time. That whoever this lawless one is, he's at the mercy of whoever it is that's going to allow him to reveal himself. That there's a particular time in a particular place, no sooner, no later than that particular time. But there's a purpose, and all God's purposes are good. The restrainer, once removed, actually ushers in Christ. So the moment the restrainer unveils who this person is, that's when Christ comes. The picture there, whatever it is, is to show that God is ultimately in control of history, that history is not a series of unfortunate events, but it's a series of providential events, reaching a climax, and that climax is it's seen in this, when Christ, the one you love, the one you long for, returns. If you are, are a Lord of the Rings fan, you will remember this battle, see, the Battle of Helm's Deep. Remember that? It's one of the most moving cinema scenes, I think, in movies. Because it paints this picture, I think, clearly. You remember, the people of Middle-earth are surrounded by the much larger armies of the armies of Mordor. And they were losing the battle badly. And it was just a few days before the battle started that Gandalf looked to Aragon and said this, Look to my coming on the first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. He left him with that. And as you remember, when the armies of Middle-earth were at their lowest point and all seemed lost, Aragorn remembered Gandalf's words. And it was just then that the light shone over the hills. And there you see Gandalf, all decked in white. And at first you only see him. And the armies of Mordor look, are looking, and they're, in a sense, 
mocking just one person. Then the camera pans out, and there are multitudes of armies, and they come down and slay the wicked. Do you remember how you felt then? Do you remember how you felt? You wanted to cheer. You wanted to shout. I think Paul wants us to shout here. That he wants us to see everything that makes this world bad. Everything is going to be wiped out by the return of Jesus Christ. Every single thing. Death itself. The thing you and I fear most is gone. And what if, what if the thing that gets you through this life is to do what Aragon did and remember Gandalf's words? For us, remember Christ's words. In this life, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Do you hear the promise of victory even in that? So that's why Paul so quickly moves from the appearance of the coming one to the destruction of the coming one. But Paul doesn't end there, does he? He says that your response, our response to the gospel, this invitation matters. How we respond matters. He says, because these persons love the truth and they refuse to be saved, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I'm unsure why Paul uses the word, he says that he sends them a strong delusion. Why he, I'm not sure why he decides to use that phrase, but he uses other phrases elsewhere to make sense of what's going on. In Romans 1, it says that, Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that picture there is God has constantly, over and over and over again, extended his hand of mercy. And because people love sin, they reject it. They don't reject it because they're smarter. They reject it because they love their sin. That's sobering. That our intellect is moral. It has a moral base. But then in the same chapter in Paul, in, in Romans, Paul says that even though they knew God and they decided not to honor him as God and they began to worship other things, God says this three times in the preceding verses, that God gave them over to particular things. So God gave them what they want. Here, God is sending them what they want. You know, it's a mercy that God doesn't give us what we want. And it may be wrath if he does give you what you want, especially if it's sin. And Paul is saying here, the quality of these persons, they, re they refuse to love the truth, which means it was offered to them. They didn't love righteousness. They loved unrighteousness. They, they didn't, it doesn't say they just loved it. They had pleasure in it. And what, a, what an indictment of the sorts that we need to repent of the moment we begin having pleasure in our sin. And we're no longer repentant. And we delight in the things that God hates. 
but it's, this is extended to you. I mean, imagine, and we'll close here. Imagine, imagine you are drowning in, in the ocean, and a boat comes up to you, and it goes to offer you a lifeline. But you're like, nope, I love the water. I love it. I love how it feels in my body. It's great. The salt, everything. Now imagine they say, they, they reel the rope in again, they throw it out to you. And you're like, no. I think I'll swim. I think I'll swim. Much better, easier, much more fun. And imagine if they did this over and over and over again and you kept refusing it. Imagine if someone jumped in to save you from drowning and you refused him. You see the picture? You see the, both the absurdity and the judgment? Because what happens to the person who refused to be saved from drowning? They drown. And Paul here is offering his hand of invitation. God here is extending his hand of mercy. Anytime you see a warning, there's always mercy behind it. Because it's saying turn. It's saying turn. If you are here and you're not a believer, or if you, if you're, if you know you're not a believer, and if you are seeking, I want you to look in your bulletin. Page 10. There, there's some words I want to read, and we'll end. This is a prayer you can pray. It'd be helpful. It's a prayer that you can consider. Oh God, I am discovering that the more I have, the more I need to have. The more I am loved, the more I need to be loved. The more I achieve, the more I need to achieve. Nothing seems to satisfy me. Nothing tastes. Could it be, as someone once said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee? Dear God, if this is true and if and if, as the Bible teaches, there is life and life eternal in Christ alone, please guide me to him. Open to me the reality of the one who alone can satisfy my restless heart. Give me the courage to believe that which I cannot see but understand. Feel in touch through the words, sacraments, and church family. Lord, I want to believe. Please help me in my unbelief. The Lord responds to such. The Lord responds to such. And as his hand of mercy is extended to you, it's always believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved from the wrath to come. And then wait for the Lord of your soul to return. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.